Jude this evening. We return again to our study of the book of Jude. And so let's turn there into God's word. Book of Jude beginning, returning to verses 8 and looking in Jude verses 8 through 10. Book of Jude verses 8 through 10. We pick up where we left off last time, right in the middle of this passage, Jude writes, and he says, Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Verse 9, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation. But said simply this, the Lord rebuke you. Verse 10, but these, speaking again of the apostates, but these speak evil, notice, of whatever they do not know. In other words, they are regularly just speaking forth their ignorance regarding these matters. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. Now we see in verse 11, three more. Again, Judas is a fan of triads. He gives plenty of examples throughout the scriptures of what he's talking about. Here he invokes and brings in three more, but yet not national or groups of people. These are three individuals. So he goes from the macro down to the micro. And he says, woe to them, for they have gone the way, first of all, of Cain. They have run greedily in the error, secondly, of Balaam for prophets. Second time we see Balaam mentioned here. And then lastly, they are like those who perished in the rebellion of Korah. Those who perished in the rebellion of Korah. Last time together, we were looking at three unholies, kind of framing our thoughts around, first of all, verses 8 and 9, the unholy boldness that is displayed by these apostates within the church that Jude is exposing, that Jude is pointing the people of God to. We'll pick up on one last point tonight on that unholy boldness by looking at the word dreamers in verse 8. What does he mean when he says in verse 8, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh? So we'll come back to that. But last time together, we kind of framed our thoughts, introduced, number one, unholy boldness. Number two, we'll see tonight, verse 10, unholy ignorance. And then number three, unholy ambition, seen in verse 11. And so just by way of review, there's always people coming in and out. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. Picking up with this unholy boldness, we see in verse 8, likewise these dreamers defile the flesh. They reject authority. They speak evil of dignitaries. And so we began last time by simply saying, these people are insane. They do not realize what they're handling or what they're attempting to do by the foolish actions of their flesh. You could say by distorting or using the things of God, by looking at the spiritual realm as a sense of gain, as a means to make money or make a profit off of uh, sincere people, the people, the blood-bought people of God. We'll look at some of those other motives or ambitions that they have. But bottom line, these are insane. Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 2.9, he says these, speaking in a parallel way, these are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not even afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas, Peter says, whereas even the angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them. 
And so we made notice of how we understand that even Michael, the archangel, according to Jude here, has a sense of understanding of God's establishment of sphere, of order, uh, of authority. And yet these do not think in those terms. They have no, res no respect for God. They have no respect for any of God's delegated authority. If they don't respect God, they're not going to respect magistrates. They're not going to respect um, the devil. They're not going to respect demons. In fact, they will foolishly get up and command and demand things of the spirit realm. And in a sense, they're just insane. The spirit realm really has a hold of them. They look like and act like and talk like they have authority and power. That's why in verse 8, this boldness is insanity. It is a Unholy boldness, notice how verse 8 begins, likewise, connecting, Jude connects to the previous examples that he's already given. We've already touched plenty on the Israelites, the apostate angels, and the apostate Gentiles. Now we saw last time together in there, verse 8, that they have a boldness to defile the flesh. And we saw how that is defined and described as, is simply normalizing sexual sin. Not only normalizing sexual sin, but using their position under religious labels or position to say, I deserve this, or God's okay with this, or God has allowed this for me, not for you, but for me. We see numerous examples within the professing church, even today, sadly, of, of pastors, of influencers, missionaries, all types of people who have some type of calling, professed calling, some type of position, and their struggle is not with sin, their struggle is being bold in their sin, and their struggle is saying, hey, God's okay with my sin. And that is the key difference we saw last time together of a Christian who is struggling with sin and his sanctification, but yet apostate whose aim is to pursue sin with the, quote, approval of God. This is insane, unholy boldness. And we saw, secondly, just as a way of a sub-point in verse 8, they have an unholy boldness to reject authority. Apostates, or those who would come into the church, at the root of their sin is pride. There's a root sin of, a, of, of pride, which is arrogance, which says that you cannot tell me anything. I come into a, a sense of understanding of already having arrived. You could say like this, they are not the quintessential disciple. These are never lacking for an answer. They know all things if you just ask them, right? But yet, their root sin is one of pride, and they reject and rebel against authority. In a sense, Jude is a little bit like John, and where he is cyclical, he will come back to that. We will see in the three individual examples towards the end that, that we see this example again, where there's a rejection and a rebellion against authority. Titus chapter 1, verse 9 reminds the church that this is one of the chief duties when we think about what does an elder do? What does a pastor-shepherd elder how does he serve the church? Well, Titus chapter 1 verse 9 reminds us that they are to hold fast the faithful word, sound doctrine and teaching. Verse 10, for there are many rebellious men that Jude is describing here, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who need essentially to, to be rebutted or to be addressed. They do not submit, bottom line, to the lordship of Christ. So friends, listen. Anybody that mocks God's grace, anybody that has a sense of pride or arrogance in their understanding or handling of the gospel or, or these types of things, uh, whether directly or indirectly, whether they minimize the word of God, uh, put down the gospel of God, as we saw this morning, minimizing the lordship of Christ, your antenna needs to go up. 
lest uh, you, you, know, you be led astray. And we, as we pointed out last time, there are plenty of churches. As, as elders, we interview you guys. We interview you as you prospectively um, look to join our church family. And almost everyone has a similar story in a way where, listen, we were born again, and this is the immediate church we went into, and our journey in grace has been just that. Uh, but over the course of time, it, there's a correlation to um, realizing sound doctrine or the meat of God's word and, the, and then realizing that you weren't getting it or the minimizing of that, uh, those types of things. That was a, the study of, that we were looking at this morning. Well, continuing on, verse 9, we see this unholy boldness is expressed towards it is unlike the holy creatures that we do see in Scripture. We've already pointed out not even Michael uh, had the arrogance or the presumption to interact with Satan in disputing over fighting over the body of Moses. Now it's interesting, just by way of observation, that the scripture makes clear that the devil was not victorious. Uh, it does not give explanation into that, whether God's sovereignty overruled or whether Michael had enough power uh, to withstand Satan. But what we do see, what Jude does make clear, is that not even Michael acted flippantly towards Satan in the way that these guys, in, a, in our common vernacular, get up in the pulpit and showboat around. I'm thinking of a pastor right now who was once a preacher of the gospel. Uh, sound in the faith, quote-unquote, has departed from all of that. It began with he left his family, got involved with a secretary, married a secretary, he's still pastoring the same church. Can you imagine? Uh, still pastoring the same church. No elders, no oversight, no anything. And uh, just a sordid story, but now he's all into a deliverance ministry. He no longer preaches the gospel. And not only does he, is he into a deliverance ministry, but it's, if you were to see some glimpses of it, you're just saying, what is wrong uh, with this guy? He's arrogant. He's flippant. There's no sobriety. There's no uh, focus, uh, that, that fear there, and a cause that should be there. It's one of, we got this. We have power over these things. We're going to bind the devil. We're going to bind, we're going to bind Satan. Things which we see nowhere in Scripture. Uh, we've already pointed out a number of these things. We see the pattern of Christ that he models for us in Matthew 4. In his great temptation, he does not bind Satan. He uses scripture. And that's for us, friends. Christ can do anything he wants. Satan is a created being, lest I remind us here tonight. God is Lord, the uncreated one. He is solitary in his excellency. There is none like him. Satan is a created being. He can do nothing outside of God's will and permission but yet Jesus models for us how to interact with the spirit realm, how to interact with Satan by his own testing, and that is the scriptures, the word of God. It is written. Now, let me just remind you, since we're on that, Satan knows scripture too. And Satan interacted with the Lord himself, with scripture. Yeah, but doesn't the scripture say? We need to know how to rightly divide the word of truth. We need to know how to cut it straight. We need sound doctrine. And this sound doctrine just to make some parallel themes here, does not puff up our minds or puff up our pride. Listen, wherever the people of God are, wherever there are those who truly have tasted and seen of the goodness of the Lord, wherever there are those who have been saved by sovereign grace, there is humility, not arrogance, not pride. In fact, I'd say this, if your theology leads you, I don't care what it is, any aspect of your theology, if your theology produces pride, you're missing the point. You're missing it, no matter what the doctrine or the theology is. 
God forbid that when we see his truths in Scripture, his glories in Scripture, that we have any type of fruit or response other than one of praise, humility, and worship before his throne. Now, as we look into this text, notice how this final point I want to make attention to before we move from unholy boldness. Verse 8, this boldness is expressed in an unholy reliance upon dreams. Now, notice here it says, likewise, these dreamers. So we can ask the question, what is Jude referring to here? What exactly does he mean? What is the source or the cause of these apostates' actions? And we have a hint here when he says these dreamers. Now this word dreamer is used once in Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament. It does refer to a dream, a sign, a vision. But in the Old Testament, the only other time it's used is in the Greek Septuagint usage throughout the Old Testament. So uh, take your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. And this is too important a point to gloss over. I think it's important that we understand and make the connection by what Jude is saying here. Likewise, verse 8, these dreamers, and make some connections to even today. As we make some parallels of how do we see this manifested in Christianity today, on television today, or whatever, however we are exposed to it. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, is so helpful and this is where this word is also used, but yet not in the favorable content, context. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, God instructs His people, He says this, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, let's just hit pause, God used, used sign and wonders. That's why this is so serious. If a man comes among you, God says, and he chooses a means that God has used, that God uses, but yet prostitutes it for his own purposes, verse 2, and the sign or wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Why? Well, obviously... This dream or this dreamer that they say they're having is contradicting the clear teaching of God's law in this context, the Word of God. Listen, a dream or a vision that is from God will never violate His holy Word, His sufficient Word for His people. And so that is why He says, verse 3, You shall not listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken, notice here, in order, this is the aim of his heart, in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So, you shall put away the evil from your midst. So a false prophet was a dreamer of dreams in the context of Deuteronomy, this passage that we're looking at, but not those that come from God. It is a serious thing to say you represent the Lord. Uh, it's a serious thing to come before God's people and to say, I have a fresh vision or, or revelation from God. 99.9% .9 of the time when someone says something like that, their aim, whether immediately or ultimately, will be 
whether they realize it or not, if they're under the power of Satan, to contradict God's word. More about that in just a moment. Turn to Jeremiah 23, 25. These are two of the three key usages in the Old Testament that helps us to understand what Jude is saying when he says these, pointing to the apostates, these dreamers of dreams in a sense. Jeremiah 23, 25 is another passage that sheds light for us to understand this. The Word of God says, And I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Notice there's a distinction between those that are God's men who he would give a, a dream or speak to them in that form or a vision to communicate to God's people that would be real, that would coincide with his standard for his people, would not violate his holy word. And yet, notice here in the heart of it is, is in their heart to lie. Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart who try to make my people, notice here, forget my name by their dreams which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Now these two passages help us to understand, and I know that when I invoke this type of subject, as we're just going verse by verse through the book of Jude, all types of questions emerge. What abouts? And I have no real, uh, I have no response to the what abouts. I'm just simply pointing you to God's word. Here's what God's word says. It is not my job to try to explain the missionary in Africa who says that God is revealing himself in dreams to people and they're coming to faith by droves in Christ. If that is true and, and glory reveals that, all glory be to Christ. I have no word of authority other than to say this is what God's word says about this, right? And all types of people, I've had all types of conversations where people say, yes, I know, but this is what's, this is what's happening. We need to be careful. We have God's revealed, fully sufficient word that leads us. In fact, Jude has already made reference to it there in verse 3. The faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. We have what we need for life and godliness. And so as we look at this usage of this word, this is what I believe Jude is saying as I've studied God's word. As we compare scripture with scripture, Jude here is inflating, is describing these men whose egos are inflated. And one of the ways, listen here, just think with me, follow me logically here. One of these ways, one of the ways that apostates come into a local church assembly or a group of people is by having an experience or a vision or a revelation that cannot be authenticated by anyone there, cannot be authenticated by the Word of God. Who's to say it didn't happen? Who's to say whatever? And that's the bottom line answer. They claim to have received a word of knowledge, a word from God, revelation from God, and so because that authority is from God, they must be followed. In a sense, they are bypassing Scripture. They're undermining the authority of Scripture. So just this is my way of saying it. What is our stance on dreams? I have dreams all the time. And here's what my takeaway is, is don't take any stock in them whatsoever. Now, notice I just said dreams, <laughs> not dreams from the Lord, right? In fact, my dreams scare me sometimes. I wake up sometimes in the morning and I think, Father, help me. You know, like, you know, thankfully, listen, you know, we have nightmare dreams. We have all types of dreams. But we are not to take stock in our personal, in our personal dreams. And I want to say this. Is your dream consistent with Scripture? Then if it is, then great. We have Scripture. Wonderful. Is your dream different than Scripture? Then we don't need to hear it because Scripture is our authority. 
And that sounds arrogant. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I've had conversations with brothers and sisters of Christ, and hear me, that I truly believe are saved, but misguided on some of these points. I do not believe them to be an apostate. But listen, I have no way of verifying or unverifying, and honestly, I just it makes me uncomfortable just because we have the Word of God. This is our sufficient word for life and godliness. Some examples that are gross examples, I want to shift from those more natural examples that, that we may have with people we inter- interact with to more deviant ones, just to give some examples. Kenneth Hagin is a famous uh, television preacher in years past. He has said multiple times in the middle of his preaching that he had the ability to be transported back in time. And here's another common denominator by many of these apostates who say they have dreams and visions is they're usually sorted. The dreams that they say they have, if you were to listen to them, and I don't encourage that you do, as you hear them describe what they see and what's revealed to them, it's often unholy and impure. Kenneth Hagin describes being in the pulpit in the middle of preaching and teaching, and he was taken back in time. Now, this is where the blasphemy comes in, by the Spirit. And he was taken back in time and witnessed in real time the sin of one of his congregants that was immorality and saw it for 15 minutes. I'm not saying this. This is what he said before the people of God. And then he was transported back in lifetime preaching like I am here and was able to tell them about it. Well, listen, I can just tell you right now, God is not going to lead his man into anything that is unholy. God is not going to have his man help the people of God with anything, some type of intentional sin. Mark Driscoll, maybe is a more famous name. He is recurred. He's back on the scene. And uh, if you remember Mark Driscoll from years past, but again, he, he has a, uh, now it's been scrubbed from the internet, but a famous sermon where he got up and made a huge monologue about having dreams, or excuse me, would be in the middle of his counseling, and his people that he was counseling would come to him, and, and he would be able to prophesy and tell them their sin before they told him their sin. What's going on there? I have no idea, and I don't want to know. I have no idea what that is, other than to say it's not good, it's not biblical, it's not scriptural. And uh, nowhere do we see uh, the, the teaching of Scripture for this being a, quali- um, a, a qualifier for being an elder, to be able to have this ability to counsel people with signs and visions and dreams. I want to make this point as well before we move on from this point. Notice this. Almost every cult that exists, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, Heaven's Gate, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, David Koresh, on and on, all of them began with a dream with an extra-biblical dream, some type of insight, uh, Islam, all of them had some type of dream after the full canon of Scripture. And that is how they were completely founded. Yeah, you have knowledge, but we have new knowledge for you. We have new insight for you. So enough of that. Moving on from this unholy boldness, Jude says this. He says, Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, We can add in here the authority of God's word, and just by way of our illustration here, and speak evil of dignitaries. Number two, verse 10, we see unholy ignorance. Not only unholy boldness, but now unholy ignorance. And notice what verse 10 says. He says, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know, naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Here we find ourselves back into there's a sense where these individuals do not fully realize what they are doing. They are, in a, obviously in a spiritual sense, blind to the life of the Holy Spirit. They're blind to the gospel. They're blind to true things. That's, that's what an apostate is. They think they know, 
But they don't know. In fact, they will fully at some point turn away, walk away from all of this. But yet there is a period of time where they are using the means of Christ, the gospel, the church for their own ambitions. And so knowing what they're doing. Now, the, Holy, the New Testament does give insight uh, that, that gives us two verses. And I want you to turn to Galatians 2 verse 4 that gives us some cross-references that says, in, in some sense, they do know what they're doing. And then Jude here gives us a third understanding that says, in a greater, in the greatest sense, they don't know what they're doing. It's one way of thinking of it like this. I've often asked the questions, do the demons truly understand their fate? Do they truly understand what awaits them? Those kind of deep things of, of just asking as you consider a systematic theology of the spiritual realm. It's insanity, isn't it? And just as insane as apostates who continue on in this foolishness. Well, in Galatians 2 verse 4, Paul gives us this verse just as an aside when making a reference to those who come into the church, but they do have an aim and ambition. Notice what he says, Galatians 2 verse 4, and he says, and this occurred because of false brethren. Notice how Paul describes them that way. He says, false brethren. They secretly brought in who came in by stealth uh, to spy out, notice here, our liberty, which we have in Christ that they might bring us into bondage. This is touching on what we were touching on a little bit this morning, where the scribes and the Pharisees were simply not relieving the people of their burdens, not giving them grace, pointing them to Christ, but they're heaping upon bur burdens upon burdens upon the lost sheep of Israel. Verse 5, he says, To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. I love how Paul shows just his bluntness there. We did not let up an inch, not even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So we see in this instance, they do know what they're doing. Here, they despise the freedom of the gospel, the freedom, the liberty that we do have in Christ. Then, just one other reference is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4, here again, Paul then goes to the other end of the spectrum. There are false brethren, there are apostates who creep in by stealth, and they despise the gospel that we love. They despise the free grace that we celebrate and sing about. And they, it's almost as if they're the, the joy snatchers, <laughs> uh, for lack of better words. How dare they have freedom in Christ? How dare they enjoy their salvation? How dare they, uh, jo as we sing tonight, joyfully enlisting by thy grace divine? Wait a second. That's almost how their, their mentality is, right? We need to bring them back into bondage. But then, at the other end of the spectrum, there are those who Jude is fully aware of. He's already made mention before, earlier in the epistle, who desire to bring into licentiousness and liberty. 2 Corinthians 3, 4, Paul says this, We have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves, and as we're going to see in just a moment, this is what the apostates are. They are sufficient of themselves. There is no fear of God, no humility, only pride, only ambition. Well, Paul says, we're not sufficient of ourselves to think of, to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the, Spirit kill, for, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So as we continue, we just see some examples here of those who would desire to spy out liberty, to pervert liberty, and also to bring people back into bondage in that ambition being driven by and for 
themselves. So coming back to Jude verse 10, Jude verse 10, notice what he says, this unholy ignorance, they speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. They blaspheme what they do not understand. They are confident in their assertions and their words in their actions. In fact, many are quote-unquote experts, as I made a mention to a moment ago, the, the preacher who was formerly a gospel preacher and now is a deliverance. That's his whole ministry. That's his whole platform. It's, it's all about delivering people from bondage, from spiritual possession, and all those types of things. But yet the way he goes about speaking of the spirit realm, again, is a way that as the phrase goes, where angels fear to try, right? You know, fools go in in that way. Not even Michael the archangel speaks of Satan the way this guy does. That's just by way of illustration. Many more, I have, I have no doubt. So they continue to claim that they have additional knowledge that, that we do not have, perverting the sufficiency of the word of God, the faith which we have, which is once for all delivered to the saints. Now verse 10 says, and whatever they do, they do naturally. They know naturally like brute beasts. What, here is, what Jude is saying is this, they are animalistic. They are led instinctively by the physical realm. They are walking in the flesh. They, they don't understand, as Romans 8 and John describes, as those that are in the flesh cannot please God. This is not the life of the Spirit, uh, which profit the life, of the, the life of the Spirit, but this is the life of the flesh, which profits nothing. Nothing good can come from it. And yet this is... Their description, they are cunning schemers, and they draw people to themselves and advance themselves. In fact, as you look at the metaphor of the sheep, they devour the sheep. They stand upon the backs of the sheep. The sheep are simply expendable. The church is simply expendable. Uh, the, the cause of Christ or missions or whatever is all expendable for their own whatever, gluttony, gain, Whatever it is, that is their ambition, sin. In fact, in John 21, 17, if you remember, Jesus has that pivotal conversation with Peter after his great sin, and he's counseling with Peter. He has that conversation of, Peter, do you love me? No, 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 no. do you love me? Peter, do you love me, right? And he says, Lord, I love you. Finally, under getting to the heart of the issue, the, the most deepest word that describes that love. And then Jesus says this, John 21, 17, if you love me, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed, feed the sheep what? Feed the sheep the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Listen, Sunday after Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, the men who stand behind the pulpit have to ask this, themselves this question, did I feed the sheep of God, the word of God today. That, that's the question. That is our calling, to shepherd the flock of God among us. And one commentator says this. He says, what they think they understand, they don't. And what they do understand is wrong and ultimately leads them to their destruction. Finally, we see a third reason here of why these men, these teachers, are so dangerous. Not only unholy boldness, verses 8 and 9, Unholy ignorance, verse 10. But then we see in verse 11, a little bit coming back to that, what drives these individuals? That's a common question you'd have to ask as we look at the study. Is, is, are, they are insane. Who, who would continue in this type of sin, the most grievous of sins? 
this unholy ambition, verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone, now notice here the three individual examples, they have gone the way of Cain, they have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now these apostates, you got to remember, are not people who are believers and then they lose their salvation. We do not hold to that. These apostates excuse me, are those who leave because they never had it. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, revealed that none of them were of us. So we look at this unholy ambition here in verse 11. We have to ask the question, what drives them? Now that's, that's a question. That's a good question. It's a good question for all of us that Church, why are we here tonight? Why are you here? Why do we do what we do? Well, there's a number of answers that could come to that, but I hope they're the right ones, right? We're here because we want to be here. We're here because we love God. We're here because we love His truth. We love His Word. We're not here for any kind of sordid ambition here personally. There may We, we love the friendships that we have within the cause of Christ. We, we could give lots of examples of what the, the joy of the body brings to our life but those things are not ultimate. The main reason we're here is we love God. We want to see Him. We want to know Him. We want to experience Him with the body. This, friends, is a foretaste of heaven. Think about that just for a second. And then let it, let it shudder you. Just for, Is it? <laughs> I hope it is. Hey, listen, we're not perfect. We've not arrived. But let me just kind of remind us here tonight. This is a foretaste of what will be. I can't speak for y'all, but listen, this is the best day of the week. The Lord's Day. And it has nothing to do if whether I'm here or there or back there or wherever. This is the best day of the week. I am a member of this church before I'm the pastor or one of the elders of this church. It is a joy to be with the body. Hopefully, friends, this is our motivation. Just like we hear the psalmist say in our calls to worship again and again, come with me together. Let's exalt, let's magnify the name of the Lord. Well, as we consider what is their motivation, it's not that. <laughs> it's none of those things, right? Cannot fully explain it because we're not them, don't have their, their mindset or the understanding. But from Satan's point of view, one thing we can say is spiritually, they are under his bondage. They are the tares that he has sown among the wheat that Jesus teaches us about. So in one sense... What drives them? What are they? Whether they realize it or not, they are lost in trespasses and sins, but they are under the influence of Satan. For every, for every one of God's truths, Satan has a counterfeit, times ten, right? His goal is to dilute, slow down, to water down, all the things we can think of to corrupt the body of Christ, the kingdom of God. Now, individually, that's spiritually under Satan, but individually, we find throughout the Scriptures ambition, just selfish ambition. People see uh, different positions within the church. It could be, a, it could be wanting to have uh, a ministry, a class, or, or something like that. Our elders are very careful here before we uh, allow someone to, to just take on something. And there's a number of reasons for that. And the chief reason is that time needs to prove that you love the church more than you love your ministry. You need to be a part of the body here, serving the body, loving Christ. Before, In other words, you're not just coming here so that you can have a niche or a platform. It's not about Christ or really about Grace Church. It's about you, right? Now, I'm not 
speaking to you ultimately, I'm just trying to remind you, this is part of what our job is. Here what we see is it's ambition. It's not the glory of God. It's their fame. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, we don't preach ourselves. And the reason he says that is that's exactly what he's being accused of. Paul was accused of being an apostate. Don't listen to Paul. Don't follow Paul because he is simply promoting himself. He wants you to be a disciple of himself. And Paul says, no, we, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, the Lord. Another reason could be influence, greed, position, money. All of these are seen in the Word of God. But here, Jude describes and gives three examples by pointing us again back into the Old Testament. And we'll look at just one or two of these just for sake of time. But the first one is the example of Cain. The example of Cain. And the second one is the example of Balaam. And the third one is the example of Korah. So Cain, Balaam, and Korah. So let's look at this first example very quickly. And go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. When I said Cain, you thought I was going to tell you to go back to Genesis, didn't you? Genesis chapter 2. No, let's go to 1 John chapter 3. We'll look at the example of Cain. And by looking at Cain, we see, help us to understand who these men are, these apostates. Well, when we look at the example of Cain, what we see is self-styled religion. The example of religion of man's making. Turning to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12. So looking at the example of Cain, what we find is, um, yes, 1 John chapter 3 verse 12 through 17. But the key root of it is self-styled religion. In other words, God has already given instruction to Adam and Eve, and thereby from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel, this is grace through faith. This is salvation by grace through faith. You must be redeemed by the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And yet Cain had a better way. Cain saw God's plan, God's instructions that were given, and yet Cain despised it. Remember, going back to pride, there is no room for pride in our worship of God. When we see pride in our life, friends, we must mortify it, repent of it, put it away. Well, Cain has this self-styled religion, and we see 1 John 3, verse 12 through 17 gives us a window into this. Now, the teaching here is speaking of the command of love. These are birthmarks of the believer. This is, what, this is how you know you are a child of God. This is the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So verse 10 says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are made manifest. Well, how is that? Who, in other words, John is saying, This is the test. This is the revealer. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, speaking of Satan, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. There was a contrast. God gave the instructions. This is how you worship me. You bring of the flock. He gave the specifications. You slit its throat. The blood runs out, gory, messy, bloody. We don't like to think of it. We don't like to see it. 
But when you're around, the, the flies are present. Blood is spattered everywhere. It is gruesome. All of it from beginning to end. You know why? Because sin is gruesome. It is a picture of the salvation that we must have that can only come through the shed blood ultimately of the Son of God. And yet Cain says, I'm too big for that. I don't need that. I know better than God knows. Now, wait a second. That sounds like someone, doesn't it? Sounds like Satan. As has already been mentioned, the angels who rebelled against authority and held not to their first estate. Now, he says here, verse 12, the end of it, because his works, Cain's works, were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. <laughs> Why are you surprised? We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And we know from the clear teaching of God's word, this is not just the physical act of the shedding of blood. Matthew chapter 6 tells us that if we harbor animosity in our hearts or think evil or hatred towards anyone, it's murder. Here the context is brother, brother-sister relationship. How can I know that I'm not an apostate? You may ask. We can examine ourselves as we look into the mirror of God's word. Friend, do you love Christ? Do you love the bride of Christ? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And if you do, you will know it. That love will be manifested in a number of ways. One way is you're here tonight. It's revealed. This is not how you keep in the love of God or stay saved or anything like that. That's what we were touching on this morning. But it's a fruit that you love Him. You love His appearing. You understand what we're doing here. We're not. Listen, no one is here tonight. Surely you're not because you have to be. Most churches on a Sunday night are, are dark and closed up, and that's fine. If that's their, their choice or decision. I'm just going to tell you, if you've come out on a cold January night, I'm a, I, I have to take it to heart, and I know you. I know the ultimate answer is you love God. You want to hear Him. You want to see Him. You want to taste and see of the goodness of the Lord. Certainly we could say for sure. But here John says you love the brethren. Do you pray for the body? Do you ask the Lord to give you insight in how you can encourage the body? How you can come along and strengthen and sharpen and serve the body. And by serving the bride of Christ, you serve Christ. But if there's no love in your heart for the church, for Christ, in fact, if there's not only love but hatred, friend, this is the key. This is what Jude is saying. Like Cain, this is Cain. This is what an apostate looks like within the life of of the church. Well, secondly, moving quickly, he says, not only like Cain, but secondly, like Balaam. Now, we have touched on Balaam already, so we will not turn to Numbers chapter 22 through 24, but if you're taking notes, that is the key passage that Jude is referring to. We've already made mention to Balaam as an example. Like Balaam, and his root sin was one of greed and compromise. Greed and compromise. In fact, if you look at, going back to the verse 10 of Jude 4, if you'll look back there quickly. Yes, verse 11, excuse me. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. The, the phrase here, right there in the middle of verse 11, they have run greedily. If you do a word study on it, it can be rendered. In fact, some of your translations 
you'll hear it as you're looking at your CSB, LSB, NASB, those uh, translations, you'll, you'll see yours there. They literally pour themselves out without, without abandon, you could say. They run greedily, uh, like those on Black Friday running after you know, a door you know, prize on a great prize. They are running fast, wanting to win the prize in a sense, just to give a word picture. They rushed headlong is one rendering of it. I believe the CSB says they plunged themselves. Here's the, these word pictures help us to understand the root motivation or drive to why is it that an apostate would come into the, the church, the church of the living God for these things. Balaam also represents, according to Numbers 22 through 24 and Chapter 25, the fruit of his ministry within the life of Israel, one of sexual immorality and idolatry. So like Cain, like Balaam, who had a price, you could say, these men have a price. They can be bought. They can be bought out. But then lastly, the last example is like Korah. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 16. We, we've not touched on Korah. You know, oftentimes uh, you can go a long time without hearing about Korah, so we will not do that tonight. We will close tonight by looking at this final example from the Old Testament. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 16, and we will see what, what is the example of Korah. And I pray that you will forgive me, but I think it's important that we read this passage. Uh, in, its, in its length. So as we look at this example of Korah as a one of unholy ambition, begin with me beginning in Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took these men, or took men, and they arose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel. Now this arose up is, is not a good rose up. It's not a good arising. They rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel. In fact, 250 uh, leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. These are influencers. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Now why did Moses fall on his face? He didn't fall because he was afraid of these men. He fell because he knew God. Now Moses has had insight and privilege into beholding the glories and the mysteries of God. Remember Moses in Numbers chapter 33, he will say and will see even more when he says, Oh God, show me your glory, right? Yet he, he fears for these individuals. Verse 4, so when Moses heard it, he fell on his face and he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him that the one whom he chooses he will cause to come near to him. This is uh, taking no prisoners. Do this, take censers, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel? 
to bring you near to himself to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to serve them, and that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you, and are you seeking the priesthood also? Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. In other words, you're not, you're, you're not standing against me. You are coming against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complained against him? Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses was very angry, and he said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they as well as Aaron. Let each take his censer and put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, two hundred and fifty censers altogether, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among the congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Then they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get thee away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose, and he went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him, and he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. In other words, make space, get away from this area, the circumference. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents. And notice the tragedy here. Their wives, their sons, their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. For I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up, with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass, verse 31, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart from underneath them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and all the goods with Korah and with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed in over them, and they perished from among the assembly. Friends, that is a sobering, sobering like Korah. More than just Korah are involved here. What evidently got into their crawl, the apostates also do. Now, Jude does not give examples. I want to make clear that a New Testament elder is not Moses. That's not the correlation that's being made here at all. It's just simply saying Jude says, and like Korah. What did Korah do? 
Korah got in his crawl that he did not like God's pattern, order, and design. And he decided he was going to do things his own, his own way. This week, in the front of the New York Times, on the newspaper, one of my children saw on the, on the picture, one of these places, I hadn't had, even had a chance to, to look at this particular edition yet, so I don't know where it's at, but it's a picture of somewhere in the world, I believe these storms out in California, what I think is what it is, all the rain, but a massive sinkhole in the middle of the interstate. You can see the interstate coming up on one side, and you can see the interstate on the other side, and right in the very middle are cars and vans and trucks, and they had never seen such. And they said, what is, what is that? Now, I have no problem believing exactly what we just read in Scripture. But have no, make, make no mistake about it. God has all power to simply take the earth and to open it up and to, and to judge as he sees fit and to bring it back again. But lest we read a passage like that, and it's been a while, and the thought entered into your mind, does that really mean what, we, what it says? Friends, listen, there are sinkholes happening all just practically, naturally, in the geological realm, which is the study of the earth. Well, listen, may the Lord, I'm getting off track, may the Lord help us as we consider who these individuals are. And as we often find ourselves saying at the end of these studies, may the Lord protect our church. May he bless our church in the ways that he sees fit. May he give us all spiritual insight to be on guard, to be pleasing to him. And I'm going to close with 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Paul says this. He says, therefore also we have as our ambition simply to be pleasing to him. What is our motive? We've looked at the motives and ambitions of the hearts of individuals that Jude describes. But let's echo Paul's as we just get ready to pray and close the service. May afresh and anew the Lord give our aim, our ambition, not only his glory, but simply to be pleasing to him. And by pleasing him, submitting to his word. Let's pray together. Again, Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your word. Our souls cry out for it, Lord. We need it. We feel it. The more we read of your word and study and hear of your word, Lord, we want more of it. And so we pray that you would grow our hearts and grow our ability and grow our understandings as well. But Lord, even more importantly than that, that's good. As we leave this place, having served with the body of Christ, worshiped with the body of Christ, Father, would you prepare us to go forth this week, remembering that we are ambassadors for Christ. Lord, we are on mission living as salt and light in the different schedules and patterns that you've called us to. Father, what a joy it is to serve you. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So again, even tonight, as we close out this day, would you help us to come and be refreshed by you, your presence, your word, and would you use us even now this week as you strengthen your church. Father, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we lift up to you, Andrea Phelps, Lord, who lost her husband, 36-year-old, husband earlier this week. Father, we just lift up to you, not only her or two children and their family, but we lift up to you, Caney Ford Baptist Church. Cannot even imagine. And yet, Lord, we commit them to your care. Father, you are the God of, of all comfort. And so we pray that you would comfort them and also use the body of Christ in this area to, to do just that as well. We commit them to you and we'll continue, Lord, to ask for your comforting for them. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you.